Hello and welcome to New Books in Buddhist Studies on the New Books Network podcast. I'm your host for today, Trevor McManus, and I'm here with Mark Nathan, author of From the Mountains to the Cities, A History of Buddhist Propagation in Modern Korea, published by University of Hawaii Press in 2018 as part of its Contemporary Buddhism series. Welcome to the show, Mark. Thanks, Trevor. So I thought we'd start our interview today by having you introduce yourself. Tell us a little bit about how you became interested in the field of Buddhist studies in general, uh, where you studied, and perhaps who who some of your mentors were. Okay, I'll try to keep it brief because it can be a rather long and winding story. But um, uh, so my educational background is in some sense transcontinental. Started on the East Coast at uh, Rutgers University. Uh, that's where I first became interested in Buddhism from taking a class on Buddhist philosophy as an undergraduate. Um, but it was mostly a, a personal interest at first. Uh, but but my interest in, in Asia and in Buddhism um, uh, led me to uh, Korea after graduation. Um, this was before many people went there to teach English. Uh, in 1991, but um, I spent a year there and came back and did my master's degree at the University of Chicago in religious studies um, and wasn't intending to study uh, Korean Buddhism or really Buddhism at all. I was interested in something else, uh, but decided while I was there that I wanted to focus on um, studying Korean Buddhism, partly because I discovered that very few people had actually been working on this. Uh, I felt that it had been overlooked in comparison with Chinese and Japanese Buddhism. Um, and I knew that if I wanted to go on and, and do my PhD uh, and to pursue this this line, that I would need to go back to Korea uh, to study the language, the culture. Uh, so I returned to, to Korea and spent um, uh, the rest of the 90s there uh, before coming back to the States and starting my PhD program at UCLA under the direction of Robert Buswell, who was probably the, the most uh, important uh, formative influence in my uh, pursuit of this field. Um, so that's, uh, that's a sort of brief uh, background to, to how I got into this. Thank you. Uh, it seems like a lot of our hosts here were influenced by Buswell, and I'm sure that we'll have more to come who were influenced by Buswell. I think so. Um, so can we talk specifically about the genesis of the book itself and um, how how that unraveled and how the project started? Sure. Well, it, it started back when I was in um, uh, graduate school. Um, I had... Uh, not known initially which period uh, of Korean Buddhism that I wanted to concentrate on. Um, as you may know, uh, Professor Buswell, his area of expertise is uh, in pre-modern, particularly Koryo dynasty uh, Buddhism. Um, but uh, I sort of gravitated more toward uh, the modern period. Um, and in uh, learning about kind of early 20th century developments within Korean Buddhism, I kept coming across uh, this term, uh, which in Korean is uh, pogyo. Um, and that's the 
word that I translate as as propagation. Um, and it, I just kept finding it uh, in in all of these uh, reform proposals I was reading and um, and elsewhere. Um, I certainly wasn't the first one to call attention to its importance. Um, uh, one of my uh, predecessors, another student of Buswell's, Porty Park, had uh, uh, talked about this in her study of um, Buddhist reform movements in Korea. Um, but I, I became just sort of intensely interested in uh, what this meant, what, what the significance of it was, what role that it had played in the development of modern Korean Buddhism. Um, and so that's uh, essentially what I wrote my dissertation on um, and decided to develop that further into, into the book that we're talking about today. Great. I think our listeners will enjoy uh, what more is to come in our discussion regarding that. Um, so this book spans a pretty large um, span of time. Can you tell us a little bit about the chronology and the organization of the book in general? Sure. Yeah, it does. It does cover a rather long uh, period of time and it's um, uh I, I can contrast it a little bit with the approach that I took uh, in the dissertation work that I did, uh, because there I sort of divided uh, this topic up into uh, different components, one of them uh, being geography, the sort of geography of propagation or pogyo. Uh, another was the um, legal aspects, uh, which we'll, we'll get into and talk a little bit about. Uh, and the last was uh, media, so media and propagation. Uh, but for the book, I decided to, instead of um, organizing it sort of thematically uh, or breaking propagation into its sort of different components uh, and then tracing those components throughout the 20th century, I uh, decided to do uh, take a chronological approach. Um, so the book begins essentially in the late 19th century, the last, say, uh, 25 years of the 19th century, um, and goes through the 20th century and, and into the uh, early 21st century. Um, partly, I, I wanted, I was cognizant of the fact that we really did not have any books out there that traced the history of modern Korean Buddhism. Um, and so, I thought that would be a uh, a nice addition to the to the field to have folks who were uh, not familiar with that history be able to sit down and uh, and read about it through the lens, of course, of this um, uh, strategy for reform uh, known as as pokyo or propagation. Um, so the chapters are essentially divided up into um, a roughly. 35 year chunks, I'd say. Um, and, uh, and then I, I look at them. So late 19th century up until the start of the Japanese colonial period in 1910. Uh, and then, uh, after that, we look at the Japanese colonial period, which was itself about 35 years. Um, and then the 35 years after liberation from Japanese, um, rule, uh, up until about um, uh, 1980, and then uh, the last uh, section looks at uh, 
those last couple decades of the 20th century and the uh, start of the 21st century. Well, that must have been a fairly massive undertaking. Uh, what were, just out of curiosity, what were some of the methods that you used when uh, doing your dissertation and writing this book? Well, I had, um, uh, I had spent some time um, in Korea uh, after starting my my graduate work um, in in 2003, I was there. Uh, I'd also gone for the the World Cup in 2002, and uh, had had really been uh, witnessing both the uh, efforts of various uh, Christian groups to use that um, event as a platform for trying to um, proselytize and evangelize, um, but also looking at the um, corresponding efforts by the Buddhist community to introduce foreign audiences to Korean Buddhism through the Temple Stay program. Um, so uh, I, I did, um, in the dissertation, had considered trying to incorporate more uh, sort of contemporary um, uh, field work into, the, uh, into my study of the topic. Um, but for the most part, I, I stuck to um, analysis of historical texts um, and, and going through um, many of the, the, the Buddhist uh, journals and magazines that had produced some of the propagation manuals over the course of the 20th century uh, that were produced. Um, but I do draw a little bit on the, uh, uh, some of the more contemporary aspects and, and some of the time that I spent um, in Korea, even going back into the, to the mid-90s when I was there and had taken part in a uh, retreat at Songgwangsa, a famous temple uh, there, which um, was using uh, the mountain monastery spaces for uh, inviting lay people from the cities to come and, and spend a week trying to uh, learn how to meditate and uh, follow the routines of the monastery. So I, it's a kind of a mixture of, of different methods that I used. Yeah, it, that's uh, apparent in the writing. And I think our readers will see the extent to which you considered historical documents. It's very thoroughly researched. And I really enjoyed that aspect of the work. Now, you've mentioned Pogyo. You've put that term out there, which is a really critical term for a discussion about this book, which you translate as propagation. Can you tell us a little bit in general about the meaning of pogyo and perhaps, generally speaking, uh, propagation and proselytization of Buddhism in general, just to give our audience an idea of where we're going? Sure. I, um, I, I try to stick to using the, the term pogyo itself as much as possible, but I had to grapple um, in this book with how, how to translate that term. Um, I, I, prior to undertaking this um, project, had encountered a lot of different ways that people dealt with it and often would talk about it as sort of Buddhist proselytizing. Um, and I, I wasn't too comfortable with that because I felt like, um, uh, well, we can talk about this a little later, but uh, the the issue of conversion for me was a was a factor in that. Um, so, propag- pogyo itself is a, a a term that actually had been 
it, it is a canonical term. You can find its its use in the, the Chinese language Buddhist canon. Um, it's it's not used uh, that often, and it isn't used in the way that it was subsequently uh, deployed in the the modern period. But um, Japanese Buddhists were among the first, uh, and for in Japanese, uh, the term is is known as fukyo. Um, but it, it it's essentially spreading. It it it's uh, akin to to words that mean to kind of spread something out. Um, and so uh, the sense in which this activity is designed to spread the Buddhist teachings, um, that's really how it, it's used. Uh, and so I thought uh, propagation is, is really the best, um, the best translation for that term pokyo, but I'll probably use in our discussion uh, pokyo as, as much as I use propagation. I see. So... Uh, we'll begin talking about the history of Pogyo in modern Korea. And I thought it would be an appropriate starting point to talk about the status of the Korean Buddhist community in the late 19th century in, in the Chosun era. Uh, in terms of geography and political status, as well as social status. And I think this relates to what you discuss in the book as the mountain trope. Can you tell us a little bit about that, please? Sure. Um, this is a, um, a condition, despite the fact that, that Buddhism has a, a very long history, 1500 year history on the Korean peninsula. Uh, by the time we get to the late 19th century, uh, the, the fortunes of Buddhist institutions, um, and, um, uh, organizations and individuals, uh, had really suffered uh, a kind of loss of, of power and prestige. Um, there is a, a lively debate that has gone on, uh, particularly in recent years, about the extent to which Buddhism was really that oppressed or uh, persecuted. Um, and that's, I think, uh, a valuable uh, historical debate to have. I think it's been, to some extent, um, the degree to which the Korean Buddhist community um, had, had suffered, uh, outright persecution. If you compare it, for instance, to the way that, uh, the early Catholic community in Korea and the Joseon dynasty was treated, uh, it's, it's, it's obviously quite different. Catholics were, were rounded up and killed. Um, Buddhists did not suffer that same fate. Um, but despite that, there had been, uh, an effort on the part of the, the Joseon dynasty, uh, leaders and uh, scholar bureaucrats uh, to really, how should I put it, to um, curtail uh, the influence that Buddhism would have in society. Um, and they did so by passing various laws to uh, constrain the movement of, of Buddhists, to reduce the number of um, uh, schools of Buddhism that were allowed to to operate uh, reduced them down to just two major schools, uh, the the meditation school and a doctrinal school, um, where I'd pre previously there had been a variety of different schools and sects of Buddhism. Um, they uh, tried to restrict who could who could become uh, a monk uh, or a nun, um, and uh, eventually they uh, mandated that. Uh, 
Buddhist temples and monasteries in the, the major cities, the walled cities, be disestablished and moved outside to um, outside the city walls and, and generally to the, to the temples. And the sense in which you, um, at, at the end of the 19th century, uh, you know, I talk about in the book about you know, foreign travelers who, who came to Korea, uh, Westerners who were surprised after having seen so many Buddhist temples in, in China, Japan, and the cities there, uh, being unable to just to see them readily in in Korea unless one traveled deep into the mountains. Um, so this trope of a kind of mountain-centered Buddhism uh, that develops rather early on among reformers who are seeking to um, uh, institute changes. Uh, that was a pejorative they used to try to signal how um, ensconced in their view. Um, and and out of touch and and literally um, out of the way Buddhism was in Korean society. They wanted a more active social role for Buddhism. Many of these reformers, uh, and so they they kind of referred to Buddhism um, as as really just a kind of a, a society outside society. It's a um, uh, you know unconcerned with the the. The events of the day and simply pursuing their own enlightenment deep in the mountains. Um, uh, and that's, you know, again, I, I referred to this uh, debate that has gone on about, you know, how accurate is that as far as an historical picture of, of Chosun dynasty Buddhism. Um, and, and I acknowledge that that's, uh, I'm not trying to suggest that, you know, Buddhism was really cut off from society. Uh, there were important interactions that went on. Um, I'm really in this book interested in this trope as a, as a means, the perception more than the reality. Um, and the perception was that Buddhist, the Buddhist community was cut off, was isolated, was backward, um, and that in order to have meaningful change, uh, some, some movement would have to occur from coming from the mountains where they were um, uh, positioned and moving into the cities, uh, focusing on, on urban areas. And so that's where the title of the, the book comes from. It's actually a reference to a quote by probably the most famous reformer um, uh, who suggested that Buddhism really needed to become you know, from the monks to, to all people and from the mountains to the city streets. So that's where I, I took the title of the book from. It's very interesting. And it seems like that dialogue, uh, this critique, you can sort of see it in the dialogue about Mahayana Theravada paradigm of this sort of self-centered pursuit of enlightenment and the sort of selfless um, bodhisattva ideal. But I think we can talk a little bit about that when we get to Minjun Buddhism, which is much later in the history of, of the development. Um, so you, you've said a little bit about these reformers. Uh, is there any one or two in particular that you could tell us about in detail? Like maybe uh, Han Yong-un or, uh, yeah. Yeah, he, he's the, the one I was referring to. I said is the probably the most famous um, He's, uh, he was a, a, a poet, um, uh, and is also generally, uh, seen as, as kind of anti-Japanese, anti-colonial, 
um, uh, nationalist Buddhist uh, for his his stance against uh, the Japanese occupation. Um, uh, but he was very concerned with this this very notion that Buddhists aren't propagating. The reason that Buddhism is not powerful, the reason that Buddhism has really subsided, and he, so he said that the um, the reason that that Buddhism had lost power was because they had they had not propagated. That other religions um, were actively trying to spread their teachings, uh, actively trying to uh, recruit believers, um, and that Buddhism had shown no such concern, and that in order to change its fortunes, in order to become relevant, uh, in, in order to survive, really, um, that changes were needed. And, and he saw propagation uh, as one of the main pillars for accomplishing this feat. Um, he he wasn't alone in this. He was joined most of the uh, well-known reformers uh, also talked in their uh, writings about the importance of, of Poggio, of propagation um, uh, to affect change. Um, Peg Yong Sung uh, was another uh, contemporary of Han Yong-un. Th- those two were uh, signers of the the Korean Declaration of Independence from Japanese rule in, in uh, 1919. Um, uh, but, but others as well. Uh, all of them sort of diagnosed the problem of Korean Buddhism's isolation from society, its, its lack of relevance, the lack of interest among um, uh, lay people, uh, and, uh, and its uh, it's social isolation and it's geographic isolation. And, and Pogyo appeared to offer a strategy for overcoming those obstacles. I see. And so that kind of ties into what, what we plan to talk about next, which would be the temple ordinances that were instituted by Japanese colonial authorities. And those ordin- you write that those ordinances sort of delineated legal in legal writing what it meant to be a religion and sort of defined in components of which Pogyo was one. Um, the activity and the space in which religion could exist in Japanese colonial Korea. Can you tell us a little bit about the temple ordinances and their effect on the propagation of Buddhism in the history of modern Korea? Sure. Yeah. The, the law and, and legal aspects of this are, uh, in, in my view, extremely important. Um, let's back up a little bit to the, um, uh, before talking about the, the, the temple ordinance that the Japanese imposed shortly after uh, formal annexation and, and um, uh, the colonization of Korea. Um, if we go back to 1895, which is uh, a time when the Japanese are uh, still active and in, and influencing events but um, uh, are are 15 years from formally annexing uh, uh, Korea in 1895 there were uh, starting in 1894 uh, these reforms instituted again at the sort of behest of the Japanese um, and uh, by 
reformers in, installed by uh, the Japanese in in the court to um, they're called the Cabo reforms. One of the proposals, uh, which had not originated from the Japanese, but were um, uh, made possible by this uh, moment in which uh, the Sino-Japanese War is going on and they're uh, trying to force through a number of uh, reforms. Um, the centuries-old ban on monks uh, and nuns from entering the capital uh, and other major cities that I referenced earlier, uh, it, it was lifted. The proposal was put forward, um, signed by the king. Um, and what was interesting about that was to me anyway, when I, when I read some of the contemporaneous um, discussions of this and the rationale for, for doing so, um, Pogyo is listed as a, as a reason. And, and one of the things it says is that, you know, in, in, in these times, the, the freedom of religion, the freedom to practice religion, the freedom to uh, express one's religious beliefs, um, that already is being evidenced in as held up, I should say, as a kind of uh, marker of of the, the kind of modern nationhood that um, governments should should you know respect this and adopt it. Um, and so, you know, the the reason for lifting that ban was that whereas foreign missionaries, both Christian missionaries from the West um, as well as Buddhist missionaries from Japan they had been allowed to establish missionary stations and um, temples uh, in the cities. And that's where they were most active in trying to spread their own religions while Korean Buddhist monks were not allowed by law to, to enter even um, let alone establish a, a, a space, a religious space from which they could then uh, try to uh, reach lay people. Um, so the lifting of that ban in 1895 was interpreted by many of the uh, observers of the time and um, uh, as an important step in opening the door to this movement from the mountains to the cities and to allow the Korean Buddhist community to uh, engage in this in this practice. If we fast forward to, uh, well, the, the Japanese um, takeover, uh, their temple ordinance, which was designed to try to restrain and restrict the Buddhist community, to bring the Korean Buddhist community under the thumb of the Japanese uh, authorities, um, they prescribed what were legitimate religious activities that could go on in temples. So this was this was a measure that was really meant to be repressive, but also to give um, uh, the Japanese some uh, authority over what goes on in temples. Um, they also claimed to be protecting temple properties uh, by uh, making it, making any selling of, of temple property had to be approved by uh, the colonial authorities and things like that. Uh, they sold that as a way to sort of protect Buddhist properties and, and, um, assets. Uh, but what I noticed was that not just in the temple ordinance, but also in the regulations and laws that the Japanese authorities 
um, instituted to deal with other religious communities, in their view, they included propagation as one of these legitimate religious activities that could go on. Uh, and they were very keen to try to promote this as a, um, uh, a characteristic of what religions do. Uh, and so through that use of a sort of legal standard and um, uh, a kind of normative shaping of what is considered under the law to be legitimate religious practice, uh, propagation becomes a sort of a marker of, you know, what, what it is that the Buddhist community should be doing. Um, and I, I argue in the book that this, this had a, an important influence. Um, I don't think it was merely because the interest in, in trying to spread the religion predates the, uh, temple ordinance, which was, uh, instituted in, in 1911. Um, but it does align. It shows the way in which, uh, a new definition of religion that was imported from the West and interpreted through the Japanese colonial authorities, uh, this new definition of religion is placing priority on propagating, proselytizing as a uh, legitimate function or practice within um, religious communities. So, you know, the, the the effect of it is to say if you're if you're not propagating, then you're not really a religion. And this also had an interesting impact on sort of the structure of how monasteries are run. And I think you can still see that reflected today. I know that some scholars point out uh, it's uh, historically sort of a characteristic of Japanese Buddhism to be very oriented around like a particular sect, such as Soto Shu or Nichiren Shu. Uh, and in your book, it, it sort of left me with the impression that these temple ordinances um, had that effect to a subtle extent on the structure of Korean Buddhism. Can you just talk a little bit about those laws and their influence in that regard? Yeah. Well, it, it, um, at, at the time in the colonial period, we did not Korean Buddhism, as I, as I mentioned earlier, the, un, under the, the Choson dynasty, uh, the number of schools, the independent, um, institutionally recognized schools had been, had been reduced. Um, and the Korean Buddhist monastic community was treated really in a kind of a monolithic way. Um, there, it's interesting that there were, even in the colonial period, um, uh, things like Wan Buddhism that, that began, um, and were not accorded the same sort of, they, they were treated not as necessarily a part of the Korean monastic community, but even in that regard, they were, uh, emphasizing, they, they didn't use, uh, um, Pogyo, they adopted a, a slightly different term, but the, the effect was, was roughly the same. Um, but institutionally temples, as I said earlier, if, if one of the, um, uh, one of the activities that you are legally allowed to do is propagation. Um, uh, one would expect to see that the, the monastic community 
um, uh, as a as an area that is uh, prescribed by law to be uh, legitimate um, religious activity, you know, it, it it stands to reason that they would right, engage in that, and and it and it lined up with their own priorities, with many of the reformers' priorities for what to do. But the 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 uh, temple laws, just slightly different than the temple ordinance. The temple ordinance was was one uh, law that go- covered all of the uh, Korean monastic community. Um, but then temple laws were supposed to be for each individual temple to adopt, even though they they wound up using a kind of a template and and all kind of adopting the the same. Um, but there were, you know, how number you know having a propagator on site and what kind of activities that person would do how often did they go around what kind of uh propagation did they do all of these things find their way into the institutional rules and regulations by which the temples are run so it 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 really regularizes or institutionalizes uh pogyo as a a vital component of the life of the the temples and monasteries yeah. Before we go forward, I mean, I think the the this all this is all happening simultaneously. We have these threads throughout history of law and space, and we'll talk about media in regards to the history of Pogyo. But I think it's it would be uh, it's significant to stop and note out that this is also the beginning or reemergence of the urban space as a place, a reestablishment for the Korean Buddhist monastic community. Is that accurate? And can you say a little bit about that? Yeah. So the, um, the Pogyo as a, as a, um, a strategy of, of reform and as a uh, kind of normative component of recognized Buddhist activity, uh, also took on, um, or how should I say, became the vehicle by which the monastic community was able to move into the cities. So as I mentioned earlier, the temples had been disestablished in, um, I mean, they, you could find them outside the walls of the capital, but uh, not inside uh, the capital. Um, and so it's significant that the very first temple, the very first Buddhist space that gets um, constructed and built within the walls of the capital is in fact was called a a pogyodang, which is a uh, a propagation space. Um, these were these pogyodangs, these propagation spaces. Um, these were uh, constructed starting from after uh, Kakwangsa, this uh, the one inside the the uh, capital, um, in increasing numbers throughout the colonial period. Uh, as a way for the mountain monasteries, they were usually set up as branch temples of a of a mountain monastery, um, and and they enabled monks to have a physical space within the cities uh, from which to try to spread Buddhist teachings to the, the lay people who live there, to to urban residents, um, and this kind of proliferation of propagation spaces um, is really what I mean when I talk about from the mountains to the cities. It was quite literally in a kind of a physical form, uh, manifestation of this 
uh, idea of trying to engage socially uh, in in uh, Korean uh, society in ways that that the religion hadn't previously done before, um, and it also served to uh, help Buddhism compete against. Uh, Christianity, but also uh, in uh, against um, Japanese Buddhist schools who were establishing themselves in the peninsula. Um, so it was a a method for uh, competing against rival uh, religions. At the same time, they were also essentially um, copying what these other rival religious groups were doing in Korea uh, by by undertaking this propagation to begin with. It's very fascinating. Well, at this point, it would be appropriate to to say a little bit about um, Christianity in Korea in relation to the Korean Buddhist community, as well as what uh, some of the Japanese Buddhist schools were doing at this time. Yeah, I mean, Christianity um, in Korea has a fascinating history, um, mostly because it's... Uh, or primarily, I should say, because it's um, uh, the, it was established not through the presence of foreign missionaries, um, but rather from Koreans themselves who were reading imported books uh, from China, uh, things written by Matteo Ricci and other uh, Jesuit um, Jesuits who had lived in China and and become conversant in the language, uh, and and they sought out. Uh, Catholic priests in China to get baptized. Um, and this is during the, the late Chosun dynasty and, and began um, spreading Catholicism uh, without the presence of any foreign missionaries there doing it. And it's a very interesting genesis, um, no pun intended, for uh, Christianity in Korea. Um by the time we get to uh, this period in the, the colonial period, um, Protestantism has has obviously been um, established and um, uh, is viewed very suspiciously by Japanese authorities. Um, but they are a, a presence, even though their numbers, the number of converts, uh, was was rather low and and would remain so for until we get to the late twentieth century. Um, just their very presence, as elsewhere in Asia, uh, to to other Buddhist communities, it was um, both a, a kind of a, a stimulator, a motivator, um, but also a threat. Uh, and so the the presence of um, Protestant churches uh, who were aggressively proselytizing, evangelizing. Um, you know, this is this is recognized by the Buddhist uh, community as a as a significant threat. And if they did not uh, react and and formulate some strategy to counteract it, um, those reformers were quite concerned that. Uh, Buddhism would essentially be overrun and, and um, uh, crowded out by the spread of, of Christianity. Um, and that, that remains a concern uh, throughout the 20th century, um, even when Japanese Buddhism, which ostensibly was the, the model 
upon which Korean Buddhist reformers um, based their strategies for how to devise Pogyo, um, uh, they still um, were cognizant of of Christian, both Christian proselytizing methods, um, but also the the threat that Christianity posed as it attracted more and more throughout the 20th century, more and more ordinary Koreans and, and encouraging them to convert and to uh, self-identify as Christian. And you, you mentioned throughout the book, uh, specifically about some of the mimetic processes that, um, those behind Buddhist propagation may have adopted from Christian missionaries or modeled after Christian missionaries. Uh, can you say a little bit about that? Yeah, I found it, you know, when I first became interested in this topic, which we discussed earlier, um, you know, I would ask a lot of folks that I knew in Korea about, you know, what they thought of Pogyo and what they, or, you know, reading some of the, uh, uh, journals, journal articles, newspaper articles in uh, Buddhist publications about this, there, there seemed to me to be a, a, a kind of um, ambivalence about how much was taken from Christianity. I mean, it was almost like a, uh, there, there was a recognition that, yeah, of course, Buddhism needs to try to, um, spread its teachings to reach people to to make the teachings accessible um you know those are those are valid concerns um but there seemed to be uh i don't know exactly what the right word is for it it's a kind of a sheepishness and or or a um uh, uh embarrassment over the fact that so much of it seemed to be copying what christians had been doing um, so I, uh, to give an example, uh, Peg Young Sung, um, one of the, uh, the early adopters and reformers, early adopters of, of propagation, um, and, uh, really a pioneer in, in, um, trying to adapt Buddhism to a, uh, to, to ordinary lay people so that they could, um, access it and, uh, share in its truths, um, you know, he did things like Sunday services, uh, introducing Buddhist hymns into those services. Um, you know, he was a he was an adopter of some, for Buddhism anyway, really new, innovative things. But many of them were really quite uh, similar to what Christians were doing. Um, and so, I for a long time grappled with this. Uh, you know, how to deal with this these mimetic processes and i didn't see them as shameful i i just to me they looked like similar to things that always seem to go on in in sort of syncretic environments in the way that religions always uh adopt and co-opt um strategies that maybe their competitors are using uh in order to right find um uh, in order to counteract them uh, and and I found in looking through um, uh, organizational theories uh, this uh, a, a way to talk about this that that legitimizes this as a strategy for 
change, right? So a survival strategy, just any organization, any company, um, this is a, a kind of, it, it's, it's referred to as institutional isomorphism. Um, those organizations in similar fields tend to become more like each other over time because they negate the, the advantages that some company or organization may have by adopting it themselves. Um, so to me, it looked like something very similar to what uh, was was being discussed by organizational theorists um, uh, that that was going on here. And so I, I talk a little bit about that, uh, those theories and, and why I think they apply in this case. No, I'm, I'm just curious, uh, these, um, this reorganization and this type of strategizing done by the Korean Buddhist community, based upon your knowledge, would you say that this could be observed of other Buddhist communities in, in different parts of the world? Maybe not explicitly Mahayana communities, but I'm wondering as in terms of Buddhist, modern Buddhist studies, is this a trend that we could observe um, to your knowledge? I think so. I would, I would say yes. I mean, we'll take the example of Japan, which is an, an, another uh, Mahayana dominant country. I mean, um, much of the strategies that these uh, Japanese Buddhist schools and sects were using um, in their overseas uh Right, their uh, attempt to try to to spread Buddhism overseas, uh, this had been recognized as as being copied from much of what what uh, Christians in Japan were doing. Um, so the the new Buddhism, the Shinbukyo, um, you know, they they were well aware of what Christians were doing and were trying to adopt and adapt various strategies uh, to their own ends. Um, I think we we can see this really throughout Asia. Um, it's it's uh, evident in Sri Lanka. Um, you know that's where the the term Protestant Buddhism uh, was first used to refer to what was happening in the late nineteenth, early twentieth century in Sri Lanka. Um, and I think it, it captures that same sense of of you know certain amount of um, modeling and and uh mimetic strategies in order to counter the um threat that they posed what what's always been interesting to me is not i i I, it's pretty i feel like it's pretty widespread in in asian communities in late 19th early 20th centuries um what seems unique about korea to me is that these strategies these methods the the focus on propagation um, that continues. Whereas say, for example, in Japan, uh, it really doesn't seem to, I mean, after the end of world war two and, uh, Japan's defeat, um, there doesn't seem to be, you know, maybe it's taken up by some of the new religions in Japan. Uh, this, this emphasis on, uh, kind of propagating proselytizing, uh, um, but not by the established, uh, schools and institutions. Um, so my, my interest was why, why, why is Korea, why did propagation remain so important and so fundamental to the kind of organizational strategies and the, uh, 
uh, reform methods, um, why did it remain so vital in Korea? Why, when in other Buddhist communities throughout Asia, there doesn't seem to be the same. It doesn't, it, it isn't sustained, um, in the same way. Uh, so that was a question that I, uh, I considered for the book and the later chapters go into this somewhat. Um, and my answer to it is that I think it's, it's because of the strength of the, the continued presence of Christianity and the growth of the Korean Christian community. Um, Korea is really unique in having roughly equal sizes of Buddhist and Christian uh, believers. You really don't find anywhere else that has that same kind of parity um, as we do in, in the religious demographics of Korea. And so that, that kind of continued competition and the continued threat that uh, that Christianity posed to Buddhism, I feel, was a, uh, an important factor in sustaining the emphasis on Pogyo as a, uh, a method of, of reform. I see. It's, it's quite fascinating. Um, let's fast forward a little bit in time to post-colonial Japan. And uh, let's t- you mentioned it's, it's quite helpful that you use uh, several different presidents at, as sort of markers in terms of law and geography and what is going on for Pogyo at that point in, in Korean Buddhist history. Uh, we start with uh, Ri Singman, who interestingly is scholarship often notes either in passing or in strong emphasis, the fact that he was a Christian. But can we talk a little bit about um, what was going on at the time of President Ri's when President Ri was in office for Pogyo and also particularly about the infighting regarding celibacy among the Korean monastic community? Sure. Yeah. I'll just correct you. You, you had mistakenly said uh, post-colonial Japan, but you obviously meant Korea. Um, uh, well, before we, before we talk about uh, Seungmin Ri, um, we should mention the, uh, in, the book deals only with South Korea after the end of liberation, right? So we, um, while it would have been nice to include something about North Korea, that's obviously a very different and difficult task. Uh, so, so really, we're, we're, I'm talking in the book about all of Korea uh, until we get to that, right? The post-liberation, post-1945. Um, but in that, in South Korea, right after liberation, before the Republic of Korea is established, the Americans are in power, right? The American government, uh, U.S. Uh, uh, Army government in Korea, uh, and they are setting policies that Seungmin Ri, I, I feel, was able to simply continue. Um, some of these are uh, obviously pro-Christian. Um, they are designed to advantage uh, Christian communities over Buddhist communities. Um, many of the decisions that were made by um, uh, General Hodge uh, and and the others who were uh, in charge of the military government um, really put the Buddhist community at disadvantage. 
So one of those, for example, was not repealing the temple ordinance. This very intrusive law that I had talked about earlier in the book as being kind of formative in, in, in establishing the environment, the atmosphere, and the, the, the legal um, incentives for groups to really focus on, on Pogyo. Um, it also gives, the, gives those in power uh, considerable um, authority over what goes on inside temples and with the uh, property and other things. So, um, so they didn't repeal the temple ordinance. They also did not return Japanese Buddhist properties to Korean, the Korean Buddhist community. Um, they, uh, uh, they made um, uh, Christmas a holiday <laughs> and not Buddha's birthday. Um, so when Sung Min Ri comes to power, uh, he's, he was backed, of course, by the Americans. Uh, he was a staunch anti-communist, which was really the main, um, the main thing he had going for him. And the fact that he had been involved in the right, uh, provisional government and, and other things. Um, but he was a, he had a authoritarian tendencies and, um, uh, and was a devout Christian. Um, and I, it's really indisputable that he was, uh, favoring, uh, Christians and Christian community over Buddhists, um, in much the same way that the Americans had done when they were in charge. Um, so for instance, in the military, right, we get, we get the Korean war in 1950. Um, there are Christian chaplains, but there are no, for, for Buddhists in the military, um, they have no spiritual advisors they can turn to. Um, that was true in prisons as well. Uh, so there are a host of ways in which his um, uh, pro-Christian inclinations, uh, I think, uh, work to the disadvantage of the, the Buddhist community. Um, but you mentioned this, this infighting over celibacy, which was really sparked by, or I should say, um, inflamed by uh, Syngman Rhee. Uh, so essentially, in the course of the colonial period, um, certain decisions had been had been made to allow monks to marry. This was a pretty predominant practice in Japanese Buddhism, right? Um, and uh, there were Korean Buddhists who felt that, including Han Yong-un, uh, who felt that uh, monks should, celibacy is a relic of the past and should not uh, be a one of the requirements in order to be uh, ordained. Um, in the course of the colonial period, these restrictions against monk marriage were removed. Um, and after the colonial period ended, after liberation, uh, there, those who had held out, who had been um, uh, adamant that celibacy as one of the, the precepts, right, according to the Vinaya, and according to tradition within Korean Buddhist history, um, that this should be maintained and that the married monks should be uh, tossed out. Um, unfortunately, the married monks were essentially in control of most of the temples. I mean, it had become the majority of monks were uh, had families, had had were married and, and had families. And so the effort to try to... Um, uh, remove married monks and to restore celibacy uh, became 
in the second half of the 20th century, one of the most um, uh, important historical developments in, in Korean Buddhism. And Seungmin Ri charged married monks with being pro-Japanese. Um, he sided with the celibates who were in the minority. Um, he used government power to try to, um, uh, ed- to, to help out the celibates and to, uh, through court cases and things, remove the, um, uh, the married monks. Um, what's generally the relation that this has to Pogyo and to propagation? Well, on the one hand, it consumed the, the infighting really, um, sapped a lot of the energy and, um, resources and and other things that could have been used to propagate and could have been used to try to uh, advance um, Buddhism and spread the teachings and do other things. But, but this um, pure, what's known as the purification movement uh, that, that really got in the way, but what's not generally recognized is the fact that propagation served as one of the, uh, sort of core elements of the debate between these two sides, um, at least on for the married monks, one of their arguments was, look, who is better to relate to lay people and to spread Buddhism in society than those who themselves have families and know what the difficulties that people face? Um, you know, married monks are better equipped to um, to spread Buddhism to the laity, uh, teach them about it because they can relate to their everyday concerns. Uh, and so there was a proposal to try to, you know, create sort of two tiers. The married monks would be the propagators, while the celibate monks would be the kind of, you know, sort of hardcore meditators, uh, the ones who, right, uh, um, were in the meditation halls in the mountains and, and, uh, pursuing uh, awakening, um, that didn't that didn't work as an argument for why married monks should be retained. I mean, the the celibate the celibate said, you know, we'd love to have you contribute uh, to spreading Buddhism and to this effort at Pogyo, uh, but you're going to have to do it as a lay propagator, not as a monk. Um, so that's uh, uh, interestingly in today's what, what the Korean Buddhist community faces today, which is a lack of, uh, or the inability to attract enough young, uh, people to the monastic lifestyle because of the demands and, um, celibacy certainly being one of them. Um, it seems like, uh, this was a, a an important turning point. Things, things could have really turned out quite differently in terms of Korean Buddhism if that situation had been handled. Um, in another way. Quite fascinating. And I actually recall while I was in Korea, a monk kind of explaining the same rhetoric to me when I was considering becoming a monk. He, he told me, well, you can stick, you can either go to a urban temple and help spread Buddhism, or you can take another path, which is to basically spend all your life practicing, uh, meditation, which we will talk about later in our interview. Okay. 
So if we fast forward, keeping in mind uh, law as a thread and geography, if we fast forward a little bit to the presidency of Park Chung-hee and um, the, the Buddhist property management laws that were implemented under his presidency, what did that look like for Pogyo? Yeah, it's, um, it's interesting. I, uh, I did mention that the temple ordinance was not repealed, uh, was not struck down by the Americans and, and was not struck down by, um, uh, Sinman Rhee either. He kept it on, on the books and it, and it gave him tremendous power to interfere in internal Buddhist affairs like this celibacy argument. Um, certain portions of it were invalidated by Supreme court cases that had, um, found that, uh, things like getting government approval in order to, uh, sell, uh, you know, property or, or, or things relating to the temple finances, those were invalidated, but in essence, the law was remained there. Um, Pak Chung-hee, who came to power through a, a, a coup, a military coup d'etat, um, he's, he's the one who actually replaced the temple ordinance with something that he called the Buddhist property management law. Um, and, for a lot of folks, this was not better than the temple ordinance. It was just, it was like the temple ordinance in a different name. What I found most interesting when I was researching this was that he kept in essence, the same formula. He used Pogyo as one of these normative components of what Buddhists do, what Buddhist monks do, what Buddhist temples and organizations are intended to do. Um, and, and that again, reinforced the, uh, from the sort of the legal side, the side of the state, uh, that, that continued this, uh, what I believe is a kind of a, a shaping of the, um, uh, Buddhist community's efforts and, um, and where it placed its, its resources. Um, so the Buddhist property management law was, yeah, again, gave, gave the, um, uh, the government, uh, in the, gave Pak Chung-hee considerable, um, power over the Buddhist community, uh, while also continuing this emphasis on Pogyo as a, as a recognized legitimate area of, religious activity that, that goes on in temples. Um, but he also put an end to the, the fighting, the infighting, uh, between, uh, the celibate and married factions. Um, uh, he forced the two sides to come together and to form a, um, a unified order, uh, monastic order. Uh, but that was not sustainable and eventually, uh, during his rule in, uh, at the end of the 1960s and beginning of the seventies, uh, that formal split occurred. So the Choge order, which is now the largest, uh, and dominant, uh, Buddhist order in Korea, uh, became separate from what was called the Tego order. The married monks split off to, uh, form their own, their own order. Both of them emphasized propagation as their, as part of their, um, uh, sort of mission statements, uh, you know, their organizational, uh, apparatus, they, they had, um, 
even though the Choge order had kind of neglected propagation and, and giving it uh, the, the attention that many felt it deserved and needed, um, the, uh, nonetheless, the Buddhist property management law uh, made it so that you could begin a new order. This is from this point on, we start getting more legally recognized schools of Buddhism and, and different orders um, uh, akin to sort of denominations in, in Christianity. Uh, but they all, many of them, started as these pogyo spaces, um, you know, because they were generally founded in urban environments with new temples because they couldn't have access to the traditional temples that were controlled by the Choge order. Uh, and so they, they naturally took this form of propagation temples. Uh, and then, and then later were, you know, registered as such and such an order. Um, uh, so they, they, there's con the continuing kind of entanglement of kind of, of law of, of space of Buddhist reform um, that continues to play out uh, in throughout the um, late 20th century. Um, yeah. And as we talk about the late 20th century, uh, at the end of the book, you mentioned this, I, I think it's from a scholar, religious studies scholar by the name of Tweed, this concept of crossing mm -hmm. over, um, highlighting the fact that it, it's important to remember that the, monastic institution and the monastic community as a unit were not the sole source of, of Buddhist propagation. And in fact, as you just mentioned, many of these um, urban spaces in the late 20th century were sort of like private temples started by individuals such as uh, Pomnyun Sinim, who you mentioned later. But I was wondering if you could just tell us a little bit about that at this point. Sure. Um yeah, they, there was, uh, and, and I know you'd wanted to um, talk about uh, Minjung Bulgyu also, which is a kind of uh, Buddhism of the masses. Um, there, there were, there, there has been, I think, a um, a tension that has always existed between, um, not always existed, but there, there, there did exist this kind of tension uh, between the institutional order um, and the Chogejung is the representative of, of that. Um, and those who sought to reach the people uh, and that by that, I mean, you know, the masses, every, you know, ordinary people. Um, and I would say from, you know, the sixties, 70s and into the 80s, uh, it was really individual monks who were taking the lead on finding more innovative ways to try to adapt Buddhist teachings and practices uh, to the demands of modern society and 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 what people faced. Um, uh, and so, as you um, you mentioned, Pomnyun Snim, there there are uh, a number of what are today really kind of established uh, lay centered Buddhist organizations uh, that, that were founded by um, 
usually charismatic monks who were committed to trying to spread Buddhism, were committed to this uh, effort at, at propagation, um, and were kind of pushing the envelope or, or, um, uh, or at least filling a vacuum that had been left by the, uh, the, the Toge Jung, the Toge order and, and their, uh, preoccupation with other matters. Um, and so those were, those were important, uh, steps. I, eventually in the nineties, um, the Toge order decided to, to devote more, um, energy and more resources to this, uh, effort at reaching the laity and, and, um, uh, of course, still, still <laughs> considerable amount of infighting. Uh, when I lived there in the nineties, there frequently on the news were clashes and battles between different factions of the Toge order, which, uh, didn't help as far as Buddhism's image in the country, uh, at a time when Christianity was really, uh, resurgent or, or surging, I guess I should say. Yeah, so at this, we have Pak Chung-hee's presidency, which is followed by Chun Du-hwan, who is uh, highly, not that Pak Chung-hee's presidency was not, but Chun Du-hwan's presidency is uh, characterized by a lot of um, authoritarian activities, to say the least. Um, but in response to, and at the same time, there is uh, economic and population growth occurring. And these are all influencing um uh, how Pogyo is occurring in, in, on the Korean Peninsula. And so in response to this, we have the Minjung Buddhist movement. Um, can you tell us about that? Because I think it's, it's really important. Yeah, so this is um, the, the uh, origins of, of Minjung Buddhism. In some ways, they're, you know, they're, they're seen in Korean Buddhist circles as, as going back to um, uh, Han Yong-un and some of the early reformers who were, I mentioned earlier about the Han Yong-un saying, you know, Buddhism needs to become the Buddhism of all people, not just the Buddhism of monks and, you know, from the mountains to the cities. And, um, you know, the, the concern with, um, uh, reaching lay people and, and in particular to alleviate the suffering, um, to really, uh, uh, put in practice the sort of bodhisattva ideals, right? Of um, uh, seeking enlightenment above, but saving all beings below, right? Um, and and that's manifested. I mean, Pogyo, it, it it's, can be hard to define, and and some I talk in the book about some of the uh, definitions you find in in Korean Buddhist propagation manuals that are you know, for all intents and purposes, anything that happens where Buddhism is being taught is propagation. Um, it can be a little bit sort of expansive, uh, I think, too expansive. But but Minjung, the, the concerns of Minjung Buddhists, those who were uh, advocating for a Buddhism of the masses, right, focused more on social problems, social ills, whether that's authoritarianism, right? The lack of democracy or environmental concerns or labor issues or other things like that. Um, that, that was lining up for those who were interested in engaging in propagation in Pogyo meant that they were 
by definition, interested in reaching the laity and reaching ordinary people. Well, it's not just about making scriptures available to these ordinary people so that they can read them in their lives, but also finding ways to help alleviate their suffering, not just on a spiritual plane, but also materially. Um, and so many of the uh, folks who were, uh, you know, are recognized as sort of Minjung Buddhist activists um, either got their start by focusing on propagation or blended the two of those uh, in in innovative ways and it continuing to. I mean, Pomnyun is a is a perfect example of it. His his organization, the uh, Chung Tohe, um, I mean, is really um, done a lot to try to. Um, I mean, it's the the main concern is with social problems, right? Um, as I said before, environmentalism or um, uh, refugees or other other kinds of things. But at the same time, he's also a, devising strategies for how to reach ordinary people, um, whether that advances the cause of Buddhism per se or not. It's really just about putting the principles of the religion in, into practice so that people will be, um, uh, so that you can help alleviate their suffering. Yes. We've taken quite a bit of your time, but there's two really critical points that we haven't talked about that I'd like to go over quickly before wrapping up, which is one of them that you mentioned all throughout the book is media. Um, since from the very beginning of this emphasis on Pogyo, various types of media, such as newspapers, journals, and later on in the 20th century, broadcasting stations were utilized uh, to implement Pogyo. Can you tell us the significance about that and some of the maybe uh, really important examples of use of media in regards to Pogio? Sure. Yeah. Uh, it might be hard to do briefly, but I'll try. Um, <laughs> no, it's fine. Uh, well, I, I do I do um, acknowledge in the, the um, introductory chapter that, you know, in, in my view, the written texts, I mean, it's it, it's, it's more than a coincidence that Buddhism uh, really started to spread outside India uh, at the very moment when the Buddhist um, sutras and uh, religious writings are being, uh, religious teachings are being committed to writing. Um, I think that that's a, uh, you know, being able to transport um, uh, the teachings in that, uh, in that form Um is vitally important to the to the spread of Buddhism and 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 texts have operated in a in an interesting way to um, kind of uh, as a as a focus of devotion, um, but also as a carrier of uh, the Buddhist teachings. I mean, we know some of our oldest Buddhist manuscripts were discovered buried, right? They were um, uh, placed in in clay jars and and buried underground. I mean, there there seems to have always been this. Um, cognizance of the fact that the Buddhist teachings could are well, they're, they're one day uh, they're supposed to disappear, right? According to uh, the Buddhist worldview, um, knowledge of the Dharma will eventually disappear, which you know that's going to bring uh, Maitreya down and um, st you know, start the process all over again in some sense. But but it it it's it is the the form in which the Buddhist teachings are being uh, disseminated has been important to Buddhist spread of Buddhism, I think from the very beginning. Now, 
when it comes to the Korean Buddhist case in Pokyo, um, when a lot of the reformers talk about Pokyo, uh, much of the activity that, that they uh, engaged in was to produce new forms of Buddhist, uh, uh, new media forms, new mediums to spread the teachings. And so Buddhist journals, magazines, and later newspapers, uh, these become important. Buddhist publishing, um, uh, Buddhist uh, radio, um, the first uh, uh, effort in Korea to um, uh, deliver a, uh, a Dharma talk uh, through that medium of radio goes back to the 1920s. Um, it's it's really quite old, and in fact, Korea um, created the the first uh, Buddhist broadcasting station in the world. Um, uh, that that's much later, and of course, in the uh, uh, late 20th century. But um, it's it's continued right right until today. And uh, there's there's something that's known as cyber pogyo, uh, that is using the internet and using digital media forms. Uh, in order to make available the Buddha's teachings um, and to uh, and to spread them uh, as widely as possible in society, uh, so it, it's it's there's there's a a very intimate connection between pogyo propagation and uh, and media because of course that's if you're if you're spreading disseminating um, uh, that that has to take you know I mean you can reach more people through the use of these other mediums than you can in just simply a face-to-face interaction. It's quite interesting. You mentioned cyber pogo and, and these days a lot of monasteries have their own YouTube channels in which the abbots and guest speakers regularly give uh, Dharma talks and host other uh, lectures on doctrine and things of that nature. It's quite fascinating. And uh, one other form of pogo was in the urban space was the establishment of these sun practice centers, or as some of our listeners might know it as Chan, or even probably more popularly Zen. Can you tell us about the international sun centers and maybe just a little bit in general about the Korean style of Zen practice for those of our listeners who, who may be practitioners and interested in that? Yeah. So the, um, well, the international sun center, um, was founded by the um, Choge Order. Uh, uh, believe it was 2010, um, and it was it was meant uh, originally. It was meant to be a a kind of international temple stay. You know, a place for uh, foreigners in Korea to um, uh, experience Buddhism, to learn about Buddhism. We didn't really get to talk about the Temple Stay program, which I, I see as a sort of further extension or a new, uh, a new element to this uh, propagation effort. Um, but the uh, the Sun Centers, the the Toge Order in particular, has um, tried to kind of export Korean Buddhism. Now, in the book, I talk mostly about the efforts at domestic propagation, right? Um, uh, reaching the, the uh, Korean audience, uh, reaching a Korean audience and um, introducing them to Buddhism or, or furthering their understanding of it. 
Um, we, we didn't, I don't talk as much about the international effort, although there were some, uh, and it, and it, it goes back quite a ways. Um, but the, the whole globalization that started in the 1990s, right? This, uh, effort to try to, um, uh, and the Korea wave as well, the ex- exporting of Korean cultural products and things. Uh, it seems that the, the Choge order has been keen to find a way to uh, increase the exposure of Korean Buddhism to foreign audiences. Um, and uh, the Sun Center, the, the International Sun Center was a manifestation of that. And um, uh, there their belief, the leadership anyway, um, when they looked at the history of Korean Buddhism and its characteristics and what makes it unique, which is what they were really interested in, uh, they settled on this uh, form of um, uh, meditation. Um, It isn't technically speaking unique to Korea, although it's probably been emphasized. Um, I mean, Buddhism in Korea given the history of sort of constraining the forms of Buddhism uh, that were available by the state, um, uh, Sun Buddhism or Chan Zen uh, became really the dominant form of Buddhism throughout the Chosun dynasty. Um, And so, so this is, you know, this is considered uh, to be the sort of distinctive characteristic of Korean Buddhism. And, and they've, sought ways to try to attract lay people capitalizing in many ways on this interest in mindfulness and meditation, um, which we see more broadly, but, uh, they're continuing to try to find ways to reach people, uh, in ways they think will be beneficial to the lay people, but also beneficial to the monastic community and the, uh, the institution, the, um, uh, the order itself. Uh, and you know, the, the jury's still out on that one. We'll, we'll just have to, we'll just have to wait and see. Um, but that, that seems to have been the impetus behind that, that, uh, rather expensive effort. It was not, it's a beautiful building. If you ever, I don't know if you ever visited, uh, uh the international sun center in Seoul. I have not, but I do remember recall, uh, visiting Song Gwangsa and a monk telling me there that about the unique, the uniqueness of Korean Zen and, telling me about uh, Kan Hua San and, and how in co- he was giving me a, a sort of a lecture in, in compare, if you were to compare, uh, say, Soto Zen in Japan to what occurs in Korea. Uh, but I think that's a topic for a, another interview. Yeah, probably. <laughs> I mean, so, you know, if you compared it to Rinzai, right, because that's essentially the tradition in Korea, it's different than Soto, of course, because that's a different tradition of Buddhism. But in any case, yeah, we'll leave that for another time. <laughs> Indeed. Well, I really appreciate all the time that you've given us. And before I ask you our traditional closing question, I'd just like to ask you if there's anything extremely critical that I might have overlooked that you'd like to share with us about your book? Um, no, I don't, I don't think so. I mean, it, uh, given the nature of the book and how much, uh, the, the time span it covers, um, and a lot of the sort of heterogeneous material that's in there, um, it's kind of hard to, uh, to think, well, this was the glaring thing that we omitted in our discussion. But, um, you know, I think people will, 
we'll hopefully get a sense of uh, what the main argument is. I mean, I, I guess I, I'll just reiterate that, you know, in, in my view, um, this was, uh, this was a strategy, um, meant to deal with changing circumstances and environments. And I, I really, I cast it as a largely successful effort. Um, I should say that I, I've gotten some pushback on that. It's been interesting to hear what, um, particularly those in Korea think, uh, of, of the arguments. And I guess mostly they, they seem to think I paint too much of a rosy picture of this. Um, you know, part of that is because, you know, the, the book, the, the, the census in 2015 showed Buddhism losing some ground, right. With, with the number of, um, uh, Christians, particularly Protestants, in, increasing somewhat, and uh, the, those who uh, claim to uh, an identity as Buddhist declining, uh, that would seem to be a repudiation of these efforts, right? That it's, it's it's not really working. And so, you know, how can I really talk about it as a success? Of course, I'm not simply talking about numbers of, of you know, self-described, self-identified uh, Buddhists. Um, really, I, I think this was um, well-suited to the challenges that the Buddhist community faced, given its geographic location, given its um, uh, the history that it was dealing with, demographic changes in society, um, technological changes, uh, and and um, and just the, the demographics, right? Of of uh, increasingly, I mean, Korea went from being predominantly uh, rural to um, uh, overwhelmingly urban, at least South Korea did. Uh, so without this emphasis on trying to establish places within cities and, and methods for how to reach people who are there, um, I think, you know, the Buddhism would have uh, struggled more, more so than it perhaps did uh, to find relevance in Korean society and establish a viable place going forward. Um, that just simply wasn't a guarantee at the start of the 20th century that, that Buddhism would continue to have a place in Korean society. I guess that's, you know, if I can just sort of reiterate what I think is the importance of this. Um, and, and the fact that, you know, most books choose an individual or maybe text or set of texts or a group of people, uh, or an institution or an event. Uh, this is really a study of a strategy. Um, and so it's a, it's a bit different, uh, than, than others maybe that people would have encountered. Yes. And, and it's, it's quite fascinating. I would encourage all of our listeners who are interested in any of the topics that we've discussed today, so geography, law, and their intersection uh, to check out the book, purchase it and encourage your university library to purchase it, but get your hands on it because we've just scratched the surface of the detail of Dr. Nathan's scholarship. Uh, so before we close, uh, we usually end an interview by asking you what we can expect from you in the future. Are there any uh, publications and journals or books that you have in the works? What are your interests, research interests at this point in time? Well, there've been a, uh, well, for, I should, I should, you know, one caveat is the way that this, <laughs> what we're going through now in the pandemic has influenced uh, uh, a lot of those. I mean, I, uh, one of the, one of the areas that I've continued to pursue and has been important to me in my scholarship is continuing to look at this relationship between law and Buddhism. Um, uh, you know, I had, I had 
co-edited uh, uh, really the first volume of its kind dedicated to study of law and Buddhism. Um, and we started a, a, a journal here at the University at Buffalo, uh, Law, Buddhism, and Society Journal, uh, which um, uh, I'm on the editorial board for. And uh, and so I've, I've remained active in that. I was supposed to attend a, a, a conference or a workshop uh, uh, last month, actually, in Chicago at the American Bar Association uh, to look at Buddhism and constitutionalism. Uh, so I'm, I'm working on a piece that looks at the, the issue. We talked a little bit about the, the celibacy. Um, uh, I'm, I'm really quite interested in how that uh, fight, that conflict between uh, the celibate side and the, or non-married and, and married monks, how that played out. Much of it was, was, took place in the courts uh, and, um, so I'm, I'm, I'm working on a piece that, that investigates that from a legal perspective, from a judicial perspective. Um, uh, let's see what else I've also been, um, working on, uh, the Peg Young Sung that I mentioned has, has been uh, an interesting figure for me. Um, uh, I have a longstanding project, uh, <laughs> that seems never ending to, to translate one of his works, um, uh, but also there's a, there's a volume coming out about modern Korean Buddhism, uh, I think co-edited by Hwansu Kim, um, uh, and Jin Young Park, uh, that, uh, I have a piece in there talking about, uh, Peg Young Sung and, and just sort of research method, methodology of, of, um, uh, looking at micro versus macro history. Um, uh, I can't say yet what, uh, uh. The, the next monograph exactly is going to, to be because I haven't yet uh, proposed it, but um, stay tuned. I'll say that. Okay. Well, I look forward to seeing all of your future works and I hope our readers will check them out as well. You do a really excellent job of taking lenses that are not uh, typically utilized in the field, such as law and geography um, and applying them to the field which provides for quite interesting reading as our listeners will find out. Um, so thank you for your time today and uh, thank you for our listeners. Um, we hope to have you again in the future.